We are continuing a series that we began last week called Last Words, where we're, we're cluing and we are zoning in, we are diving deep into the final words, Jesus' last seven statements over his final six hours of life. We are looking at every single word because what we are discovering is that Jesus' consistency was absolutely remarkable, that the same things he said when he was alive are the exact same things that he echoed in his death. And just like like when somebody speaks up during a significant life transition or when they are passing away, we lean into those voices. We are going to do the same today. We are going to lean into the second of Jesus's last words. But before we do that, let me tell you a story. When I first got here, I met Peter Torrey, who was our executive pastor. Many of you know him. He's been our executive, or he was our executive pastor for about 10 years. He's been at this church, him and his wife, Jeray, for over 40 years, and they have two sons named Derek and Dale. Now, quick disclaimer, the story I'm about to tell you about Derek and Dale is no reflection of their parenting, okay? These are good parents, good Christian parents, and then their sons. So uh, this is how the story goes. Uh, a number of years ago, in fact, when I first got here, these two guys really took me under their wings and, and were supportive of me and encouraging, and we'd spend lots of time together and have, have great meals and conversations, and they used that to their own advantage. One winter camp, when I was uh, out with many of their students, like their kids, investing in them, giving up time from my family to pour into their kids. Do you know what they did? They installed a horn underneath my car. Now, if you know me, I know nothing about you know, screwing in light bulbs or fixing anything. I'm just absolutely mechanically challenged. So they, they hooked a horn one night under my car and it was controlled by a remote that only they had and the, the remote had two different sounds. The first sound was mariachi music, okay? The second sound, the second sound was ice cream truck music, okay? So those were the two sounds that they hooked up to my car. Now, I didn't know this until one night driving home late from leading youth group in Pomona. I'm cruising through and all of a sudden I hear mariachi music blasting around me and I'm like, who, who has the courage to play mariachi music at like 10 o'clock at night? I'm looking around, there's no other cars. It's my car, okay? My little white Corolla is blasting mariachi music in downtown Pomona. Now, it gets worse because the next day, the next day I was driving to get some lunch, to meet somebody for lunch, and I was driving down white here in Pomona. And as I was driving down white, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I hear the, the sound that I grew up hearing that I love so much, the ice cream truck, right? And I'm like, it's gonna be a good day. And I look around to see where is the ice cream truck. I'm the ice cream truck, okay? <laughs> I'm cruising down. I'm literally like, what is going on? And I don't know what to do about this. I can't figure it out. Is it demon possession? Is it a cruel prank? And so, oh, I'm so frustrated. So a few weeks later, this keeps happening randomly. I don't know what's going on. A few weeks later, I, I uh, park out in front of Rubio's. And, uh, and as I park out in front of Rubio's, I jump out of my car to go get lunch. And there's a police officer car parked next to me. And as I'm walking to get lunch... All of a sudden, mariachi music starts playing from my car. Now, this officer looks at me strange, and I'm panicking, panicking. And he looks at me, and he goes, sir, what's going on with your car? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. It just does this, I guess. I don't, don't all Corollas do this? And, and he goes, no, they don't, sir. Um, uh, are, he, and then he asks me this question. He goes, are the, do you have any outstanding warrants? Okay? 
I'm like, I don't know what that is. No, I have no outstanding warrants, officer. I'm so sorry. I think some guys pranked me. I don't know what's going on. And he goes, okay. He goes, I- I'm going to need to see in your trunk. So I go and I open my trunk. And I'm like, please don't be like a weird thing. I don't know. I'm just opening the trunk. And, and then he asks me this. He goes, he goes, sir, I need to ask you a question. Because it's playing mariachi music. He's a Hispanic police officer. He goes, sir, are you racist? I'm like, oh my gosh, No. <laughs> I am the opposite of racist. Whatever the opposite of racist is, that's me. That is who I am. I'm so sorry, officer. I don't know what's going on. And I was literally panicking, panicking at this moment. Now, Derek and Dale, who don't have a soul, they come running. They come running from the bushes. And they're like, ha, ha, ha. Now they had put, they know this police officer somehow. I was literally so panicked. They gave me the remote. The remote eventually broke. But here's the thing. I don't know how to like uninstall the horn, right? So it just kind of sits there and I figure it's dead. Well, about six months go by, I don't hear anything. And then all of a sudden, whenever I would stop my car, the horn would make this crackling noise, like, like this nasty crackling noise. And I was like, it's just dying. I don't know. And so I'm just kind of like, that's weird. And so I would go into my house and it would just do this. And then... And then one morning, my wife wakes me up and she goes, Eric, what's that sound? What's that sound? And I run into the kids' rooms to see like, if some toy is making some noise. We want them to keep sleeping. And I realize the sound is not coming from any of the toys. The sound is, and it could only be described as, what would that sound be that like, a mariachi musician would make when they die? Like That's the sound that my car is making. It's the death of mariachi at this moment. And, and I hear it out in our neighborhood. It's still pitch black. We have neighbors who are trying to have great relationships with it. And I'm like, this is, this is going to wake them up. They're going to hate this. So I run outside. I turn on my car and I'm like, oh, we're driving. We're driving to Montana. I don't know where we're driving. We're driving somewhere. And so I drive up to this park where I hope, you know, no one is around. And I get outside and my, the, the horn is just making this noise. And I'm like, I got to do something. So I get underneath the car and I grab the horn with like my muscular bare hands and I'm trying to yank it and it's not doing anything and I'm like please lord it was actually a Sunday before I was about to preach so I'm trying to like I'm like I've got a thing to do we got to get this out and so I yank it out of the car my knuckles hit the street blood every like a little bit of blood but blood everywhere <laughs> blood everywhere right I'm grabbing wires. I don't know anything about cars. I literally thought I might die. Like somebody might have to come up that Sunday and be like, Eric couldn't be here today. He died taking off the mariachi horn. So I'm pulling these wires. Finally, finally, I get all the wires out. Like the the music stops playing and I drive home. And I was like, that was the craziest experience I've ever had. I'm like ready to preach at that point. You know what I mean? I I was energized. I tell you that story for two reasons. The first reason is this. Number one, Never, ever, ever trust the Tory brothers with your car. Never. (laughs) Whatever they tell you, don't do that. But number two, number two is this. That when, the longer you wait to deal with a problem, the longer you wait to deal with a problem you have, the worse off you will be. If there's a problem, and if you wait, if you delay, if you don't deal with it, the worse off you will be. Today, as we continue our series, we have a really, really big problem before us. And the problem is Jesus. The problem is what are we gonna do with Jesus? Because over and over and over again, the claims that Jesus made in his life, the claims that he makes on the cross are so unique. They're so challenging They're so problematic, not for him, they're problematic for us because he doesn't leave any room for us to just treat Jesus as a teacher or an interesting guy 
or, or a great philosopher among other philosophers. C.S. Lewis had this way of talking about Jesus. It's called the trilemma. And he actually didn't invent it himself. He actually learned it from another guy. But essentially the trilemma is this, that Jesus was either a liar, that Jesus was a lunatic, or he was Lord. C.S. Lewis actually said it in slightly different words, but the essence of it is this, that Jesus was a liar, or he was a lunatic, or he was Lord. You can't take one without the other. And like I said, C.S. Lewis probably learned it from a guy named John Duncan. He, he was a 19th century Scottish preacher, and John Duncan, he said this, Christ either deceived mankind by his conscious fraud, or he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. It is inexorable. I mean, the reality is Jesus either was exactly who he said he was, or he was a liar or an absolute lunatic. And so friends, because I love you, I don't want any of us to leave this room without making a decision about who Jesus was. Maybe it's your first time coming here, you're checking out this Jesus thing. At the end of our time together, you're going to have an opportunity to respond to who this Jesus was. Because if he truly is Lord, then he demands us to follow him. He expects absolutely everything from us. And so the way we're going to look at the, the second statement of Jesus, the second of the last words, is we're going to look at it from the perspective of three different angles. That as we're going to see, Jesus offers salvation. But I want to view it from three angles. The first angle is this, the head. I want to look at how the salvation Jesus offers us engages our minds. I want to look at it from the heart how, how the salvation Jesus offers us engages how we feel. And then thirdly, the salvation that Jesus offers us engages our hands. It demands that we live life differently. It requires, it is so compelling, it is so good that we can't help but respond to him with our lives. So let's dive in with our first big idea, the head, the head. What we're gonna discover is some weighty evidence, some weighty evidence that compels every one of us in this room, or ought to compel us in this room, to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. We're gonna pick up the story right where we left off last Sunday, Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 35. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. So remember, Jesus is on the cross. We've experienced, we've seen the agony of what crucifixion was. And so Jesus is just beginning that. And there are some watching, the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. So the, the religious leaders of his day say, look, if this guy was actually who he said he was, then he wouldn't be up on the cross right now. Maybe some of us have been in that place where you say, if Jesus really is God, I wouldn't have gone through that horrible tragedy. If Jesus really is God then I wouldn't have had to deal with that loss or that pain. If Jesus is God, then my life would look a lot better than it looks right now. You see, we like these people, we project onto Jesus because oftentimes we are more interested in Jesus being like a magic genie for us than being the savior of our lives. And so we project onto Jesus. Jesus, if you were God, you would do this. 
But it's not just the religious leaders, it's the Roman officials as well. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. If you are the king of the Jews, then certainly you need to get off of that cross. And so the statement reads, above Jesus, this is the king of the Jews. And ironically, it's meant to mock It's meant to say, (laughs) this guy? You think this guy is the king of the Jews? And it's because their expectations of Jesus were all wrong. In your sermon notes, there's a section there where I want to I bring to your attention that Jesus fulfilled over 60 messianic prophecies. The word Messiah means chosen one or anointed one, savior of the world. One that had been talked about. Jesus fulfilled over 60 messianic prophecies, all of them dating at least 400 years before he was born. There's, there's this uh, astronomer and mathematician named Dr. Peter Stoner. And he essentially said with, the, with a group of college students, they did the math on this. And they said the likelihood that one person could fulfill eight of the prophecies, eight of the 60 that Jesus fulfilled, the, the likelihood of that is, is similar to one in 100 million billion. That's one in one 17 zeros. It is a statistical miracle. It is absolutely impossible. And in your sermon notes, I've given you just eight of them. And notice that all eight of them are prophecies Jesus had no control over. Jesus was not in control of these situations. In fact, these happened to him that only continue to prove and engage our minds And the reality that Jesus is actually the savior of the world. That he is who he claimed to be and who and what was claimed about him. Jesus was perfectly that. I want to share four of them with you. The first one is this, the birthplace of Jesus. So the prophecy comes like this. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times, who will be the king over Israel, king of the Jews over 400 years before Jesus shows up on the scene. Bethlehem is mentioned, this insignificant city. And yet in Matthew chapter 2, in the historical biographies of the life of Jesus, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. The scriptures are very specific when it comes to places and peoples for this reason. Jesus had no control, obviously, over his birthplace. The second one is the lineage that he came from. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. That he will come from the line of David, says the Old Testament. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Jesus had no control over his birthplace. He had no control over his lineage. He had no control over the third one, the nail piercings in his hand. Psalms twenty-two sixteen says, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. He's describing those who have put him on the cross. They pierce my hands and my feet. How specific. 
And yet, as Peter tells us in the book of Acts, as he's recounting the crucifixion of Jesus, Peter says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan. It's talking about Jesus, by God's foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Again, Jesus had no control over how they would kill him. And lastly, he had no control over what they would do when he was up on the cross, Psalm twenty two eighteen, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. And the fulfillment, Luke 23, verse 34, the last verse that we ended last Sunday with, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. See, these are things completely outside of Jesus' control. Complete evidence that God was working that even though many looking on said, this can't be true, if this was true, then this would happen. The reality is that Jesus was the Messiah. He he was the rescuer of all of humanity. That what he did 2,000 years ago was prophesied of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before him. And it is just as powerful 2,000 years later. And at the end of our time together, as I give you an opportunity to respond, one of the reasons that you can trust and know that as you surrender your life to Jesus, that you can count on him, is because he fulfilled what was written long ago. Jesus was not just a random rabbi. He was the savior of the world. You see, for for these people, these people, they had a problem Because the version of Jesus they saw wasn't the version of Jesus that they had in their minds. Because for them, if Jesus escaped sin and death, that would have been evidence that he was God. But Jesus did not escape sin and death. Jesus triumphed over sin and death. You see, God did not send his son to planet earth so that he could escape sin and death, leaving the problem still very active in the world. That Jesus, God in a bod, showed up on planet earth to triumph, to overcome, to defeat sin and death. The thing that gets in the way of your relationship with God and your relationships with others, Jesus died to overcome that, to triumph over that, to defeat that. So that you and I could live free lives. Now in a moment we're going to meet two two criminals. And one of those criminals is very unaware. And the other criminal is incredibly aware of exactly what we've been talking about. At this moment, not only is Jesus engaging our heads and realizing that he is who he said he was. But he's about to engage our hearts. Recognizing that his sacrifice was costly. Watch how he engages with this second criminal. One of the criminals, the unaware criminal, he hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. He's got a big if there. He says, if you really are the Messiah, this wouldn't be happening right now. And then the second criminal, the aware criminal, he rebuked him. And he said, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. What a great proclamation of faith. That for however it came about for this second criminal, 
He was absolutely clear in the fact that he and the other criminal deserved to be on the cross. That their crimes, their rebellion, their sin, that's what it resulted in in that day. But the aware criminal, he says, there is more going on here. You say this Jesus can't really be the king of the Jews. You say this Jesus can't really be the God of the universe because he won't do what you want him to do. But I am telling you that this is exactly what God had planned. You see, as scholars and theologians would say, this is one of the first moments it's the first recorded moment during the crucifixion where somebody recognizes this is a part of God's redemptive plan in the world. This is how God is reconciling the world to himself. This is how God is bringing all humanity back to himself. There's no plan B. There's no other option. This is it. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And in some crazy, upside-down story, God has to die in order for us to live. Why? Because that's how much our sins cost because my separation from God is such a big deal to him that in all of his holiness and perfection, instead of rejecting me, he says, I'm coming for you. And sin and death are so powerful and pervasive and infectious that the only one suited to deal with it once and for all is God Almighty. And this criminal, this criminal, he professes faith at this moment. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's saying, I get it now. I understand that, that what you're doing is for all of these people that you just said, Father, forgive them. It's for all of people, for all time, and it's for me. And I think this man had a really deep awareness that Jesus was not just on the cross because the Jews and the Romans put him there. He wasn't just on the cross because your sin and my sin put him there. But Jesus was on the cross because this criminal's sin put him there. And yet he recognizes that God's desire here is not to make people feel guilty or to hold a grudge over their heads. This is... This is God's greatest act of love for all of humanity. And so this criminal, this criminal has the courage to say, Jesus, remember me. Maybe some of you are here and, and what Satan would love for you to be thinking right now is, yeah, that idea of salvation and forgiveness, it's for everybody else, it's certainly not for you. But here's a criminal whose whole life was wrapped up in rebellion and rejection and sin. And on his deathbed, his last words are, Jesus, remember me. Friends, this forgiveness that Jesus offers, this salvation, it's for all people always. Notice what Jesus says to him. Jesus answers him. 
I mean, remember, he's exhausted. He, Jesus is just trying to take in deep breaths to stay alive. And he has the ability to respond to this criminal. And he says, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. I imagine these words made this criminal who was bound and nailed to a tree feel like the freest person on planet earth. Because his entire life had been about running away from God. And it was when he was bound up, he discovered that God still wanted to free him. I imagine these words pierced his heart. Because Jesus made five unwavering promises to him and it's the same five unwavering promises that he makes to you and I. That if you're in this room and you have surrendered to Jesus, you have received his salvation, the forgiveness of your sins, or if you haven't done that yet and today's the day you're gonna do that, then these promises are true for you. The first one is this. Jesus will always tell you the truth. That's true for everyone. That he will always tell you the truth. He says, truly, truly. This means that God is interested in being honest with you. He doesn't want to keep things from you. He doesn't want to hide from you. He wants to be very truthful with you. Because the reality of your sin is such a big deal to him because you're such a big deal to him. And so he's always truthful with us. The second promise he makes is he says to the man, you will eternally exist in heaven. That because this man has trusted in Jesus, because he's believed in him, because he's received his forgiveness and salvation, Jesus says, you will eternally exist in heaven. In a sense, he says, this is not the end of your story. Oh, maybe some of you need that right now. That right now, the situation you're in, is not the end of your story. The third promise that Jesus makes to this man and to us who trust him is this, that Jesus will eternally be with us in heaven. You see, heaven, heaven is you and Jesus and the entire family of God worshiping him in millions of different ways. Constantly thanking him and acknowledging him for this perfect paradise. In fact, that's the next promise that he makes to him is that heaven is going to be a perfect paradise. And this word that Jesus uses is kind of a throwback to Genesis, to the garden, when things were perfect between all of creation and things were perfect with God. Jesus says that, that's the picture I want you to have in mind when you think of eternity with me and even more. And then lastly, the promise Jesus makes is that heaven begins after death. That surely here on earth, we get to experience, as Jesus talked about, heaven crashing into earth, more of heaven on earth as Jesus prayed. And yet the reality is this place is still marked with sin, that we're still living in the tension and struggling through that. But there will come a day, there will come a time that for those of us who have surrendered our lives to Jesus, where we will live eternally with the family of God, with Jesus, and the paradise that he has created for us. So what do we do now? The goal is not that we just get there right now. In fact, God has a mission and a purpose for you. It's why we say everyone everywhere following Jesus. I mean, we can't stop talking about that idea because we believe that's why we're here. Knowing that we're gonna spend all eternity with Jesus begs the question, what do we do today? You know what we do today? 
We, we're ambassadors. We represent Jesus everywhere, in our workplaces, in our families, in our friendships, on the soccer fields, in the environments that we find ourselves in. We are constantly, as Christians, asking the question, how can I represent Jesus here? What does it look like? Because Jesus gave up his life that I might live my life for him. But Jesus isn't done with us yet. And maybe some of you are going, look, that idea of Jesus being for all people, I get that, but me? Really me? In the middle of one of Jesus' tough teachings in Matthew chapter 10, he sort of takes a break, and maybe it's to encourage the people. Maybe it's to remind them of something that they possibly have forgotten. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 29 to 31, I think he wants to say something to each one of us this morning. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? So Jesus just says something culturally. He goes, hey, you know those sparrows? You know those sparrows? You know how it's crazy? Like, you can't get one of them. Like you can't just buy one of them. In fact, they're so cheap. Like they're so cheap. They're so insignificant that if you want one, you got to take two. You can't cut up a penny. And so for the penny, you, you can have two spares. You know those birds that just seem so insignificant? This is what Jesus says. Not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. What? These two birds that were sold for one penny. These two birds that nobody cared about. You're telling me that God Almighty, who's solving all the world's problems, who is redeeming the entire world, you're telling me this God knows when these birds fall? And Jesus says, yes. And then Jesus says this line. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Here's the brutal truth, you guys. Like, I'm balding. This is like the first time I've been this, okay? I'm balding. I've started on Instagram, and I hate that they do this. Instagram has started targeting me with, me with like, these ads that are like, balding doesn't have to affect you. And I'm like, how do you know that I'm insecure? Like, how do you know that that's going on in my life right now? Some of you have amazing hair. I can see it. Some of you have really great hair. You know what Jesus says? He says that every hair, the ones you can see, the ones you can't see, that Jesus knows every single one of them. And it's really a larger idea. He's saying Jesus knows every single thing about you. Some of them you don't even know about yourself. Jesus wants to say every concern you have, every burden you carry, every secret prayer you offer, everything you've thought, every dream you've had of the future, he knows it all. And then Jesus concludes with this. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. This is a Jewish way of saying, don't be afraid. Because you are worth more than all the sparrows in the world. Friends, that's how much you matter to God. Whether you believe it or not. Whether you've thought about it today or not. You are deeply valued, known, loved, and cared for by the God of the universe. And he knows everything about you. Well, not only does salvation engage our head, 
and it engages our hearts, but it actually engages our hands. It engages the way we live. I want to jump back to a few chapters in the same gospel, Luke chapter 19. It's one of my favorite stories, and it begins like this. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. We'll call him Zach. Zach was there. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. This means he made his living robbing, stealing from, overtaxing his brothers and sisters, his Jewish brothers and sisters. And not only did he do that, but he was really, really good at it. And this was somebody who no one, especially the religious people, wanted anything to do with. But Zach, he wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing we've got to back up. So, Zach, Zach wants to see Jesus. He's curious about Jesus. So he decides to climb up into this tree because he's short. So he runs ahead of the crowd. He climbs up in a tree to see Jesus. But that is not the only reason that Zach is in the tree. No, the reason Zach's in the tree today is because the tree is safer. Because the tree doesn't require transformation. Because he can climb up, he can kind of observe what's going on. Maybe some of you are there right now. That you've been checking out this Jesus thing, you've been checking out church for a while, and you're up in the tree, and you're just kind of checking it out, surveying what's going on. That's okay, but Jesus doesn't want to leave you in the tree. Check out what happens. Jesus, Jesus reached the spot where Zach was. He looked up and said to him, Zach, come down immediately. To which Zach is going, Are you, you saw me? The goal was that you wouldn't see me up here. Jesus says, come down immediately. I must, stay at your, I must stay at your house today. So he came down and at once welcomed him gladly. He had this incredible transformation. And you see, I believe we love a Jesus that notices us. I mean, we want to be noticed by God. We don't want him to be distant. We want Jesus to notice us. But we struggle with a Jesus that calls us to follow him. Jake, where are you at, buddy? Come up here real quick. Jake, run, run. Come on, you're an athlete, dude. You can do this. There we go, there we go. This is one of our students, Jake, in our group. I told him about 10 seconds before this. So, Jake, stand on up here real quick. Here's the thing. We love this kind of relationship with Jesus. Whereas we, as he walks around, he notices us and he sees us. We like playing it safe. We like being in control of our relationship with Jesus. And yet what Jesus desires is not just to notice us in the tree, but he wants us to follow him. Come on down here real quick, Zach. This is the kind of relationship that Jesus wants to have with you. He doesn't want to have one where you kind of stay up in the tree and play it safe. You're doing a great job, by the way. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus wants to have the kind of relationship with you where he is leading and you are following him. You see, notice who's leading this relationship. I'm a bad Jesus. Don't, don't, don't go there. But notice in this relationship, I'm taking Jake where I want Jake to go. The kind of relationship we like with Jesus is one where we are walking and he's following us, right? So, hey, Jesus, I'm really passionate about this political party. I know you are too. Come on. Or, Jesus, I'm so angry at that group of people. I know you are too. Let's go get them. You see, that's the kind of relationship we like, where we get to drive the car. But the kind of relationship, make no mistake about it, that Jesus wants with every single one of you, and it's a better relationship 
is the one where he's driving the car, where he's leading you where he wants you to go. Give it up for Jake. Good job, buddy. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. There are many different trees. There are many different trees that we find ourselves in. Maybe right now you're in the tree of marriage. You know what the tree of marriage is? It's this. I'll love and serve my spouse. I'll put their needs before mine as soon as they, as soon as they start, as soon as they initiate, as soon as they do that for me. There's, there's the tree of dreams where God has actually put a dream on your heart and you go, I'll act on that as soon as the whole blueprint is laid out before me. There's the tree of maybe, maybe in your family, you're the only man who loves God. You're the only man who fears God. And you've got brothers or uncles or parents or other people who, who are other strong males in your family who don't love God. And, and it can be so tempting for you to sit in the tree and say, well, when I'm around them, I'm just going to talk like them. I'm just going to think like them. And I'm just going to act like them. Jesus doesn't want you to stay in that tree. In fact, we don't need more men who act like each other, who think like each other, who talk like each other, who live like each other. No, we need men who act and think and live like Jesus. Maybe some of you, maybe some of you, hold on, women, your turn's coming. Females, here we go. Ladies, maybe for you, maybe for you, your tree is comparison. Your tree is you sit up there and you're scrolling Instagram and Facebook and you still have a MySpace and you're checking all those and you're seeing everybody else. You're seeing what everybody else is doing and you're comparing yourself. And you're saying, man, if I only had that kind of husband, if I only had that kind of relationship with my kids, if I only wore those clothes, if I was only this size, if I was blah, 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 and you're constantly comparing yourself, you know one of the best ways to remain absolutely ineffective in the kingdom of God is to constantly be comparing yourself to everyone else around you. Ladies, you know what I think Jesus wants to say to you and to the gentlemen too, but maybe just for the ladies, just for a few moments. Do you know that he calls you his masterpiece? In scripture, you are called his masterpiece. You know what that means? That means you are his greatest work. That means he looks at you and he goes, doesn't get better than that. And you know what I know about masterpieces? Masterpieces have a master plan. You know that with your life, God has a plan. God has a master plan. And it doesn't involve you sitting up in the tree. It involves you following him and living boldly and courageously. Maybe for some of you, you're in the tree of mental health or emotional illness. And honestly, you're struggling right now. And you're not opening up or sharing with anybody else. I think God wants you to get out of that tree and talk to someone. Make it clear what you're going through. Let other people come into your life and help you follow Jesus. Maybe you're a parent. And if you're a single parent, you are my hero. But maybe you're a parent. And Jesus is knocking at your door and saying, hey, I want to take a walk with you. I want to spend time with you. And you're going, Jesus, you don't understand. I've got to make like four lunches before 6 a.m. Like I have no time. We have no mayonnaise in the house. We're done. This is not going to be a good day. And he's going, no, no, no. I want to actually spend time with you. I want you to prioritize that. Because parents and single parents, the best gift you can give your kids is not all the money in the world, it's not all the experiences. It's a relationship with Jesus that is so transformative in your life that they see it and they want it. And that's exactly what happens to our boy, Zach. But Zach stood up. 
Zach stood up in verse 8 and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. See, salvation always results in a transformation of our lives. Salvation is not just a head game or a heart game. It's a lifestyle to where you and I are radically and forever changed by the God of the universe. You see, Jesus, he sacrificed for you. I think of when Charlie was born, he was maybe two minutes old, and, and they were heating him up, which is like the same thing we do to lizards, we do to baby kids. And so like, he's, his body temperature is rising, he's being heated up. And I remember looking at him and just going, this is crazy. And I thought to myself, I would give up my life for this kid right now. He's only two minutes old, and I would give up my life for him. Jesus didn't just give up his life for pure, innocent Charlie in two minutes of age. No, no, no. Jesus looked at this criminal whose life was marked by sin and rebellion. And he's looked at you and I, every single one of us here, and anyone listening or watching online, that we are pursued by the God of the universe and he gave up his life for you so that your, my, your life might be lived for him. I want to invite everyone in the room to close their eyes with me. And as you close your eyes, I wonder if there's some of you here who you've never begun that relationship with Jesus. You've never received his salvation before. You've heard about it, you've been at church for a while, you've talked about it, but you have never surrendered your life to Jesus. And all of a sudden you recognize whether I committed one sin or my entire life was marked by it, I stand at odds with God, but God was not okay with that. And so God chose to die for me. Paul says it in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So with every eye closed, knowing that Jesus did this for you, I wanted to give an opportunity. If there's anybody in this room or listening online or watching who has never surrendered their life to Jesus, who has never begun that relationship with Jesus, and you're recognizing that what he did 2,000 years ago for everybody else, he also did for you. Your relationship, your life transformation can begin today. But it always begins at the same place for every single person. And it's at the foot of the cross. And so if today you want to begin a relationship with Jesus, with every eye closes between you and God, and then we'll invite the community in. If you want to begin a relationship with Jesus, I want to invite you right now to raise your hand so I can pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the hands that are raised. I thank you for the, the lives that are changed. I thank you for the ways that you're calling people to yourself. God, I ask that this decision that we're making would radically transform every other decision in our lives. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Well, hey, in this place, there were some of you who surrendered to Jesus for the first time. 
Let's worship. Let's worship. Would you stand up with me and let's worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.